0: Without doubt, he is the most famous, probably the one that you are most familiar with, from stories, perhaps, in Sunday school. Uh, every little boy's dream is to grow up and be like Samson, in some ways, not, not in others. He, uh, the, the author of Judges dedicates more story, more narrative, more verses, to the life of Samson than any of the other judges. And I would say... Samson uniquely pictures Christ in multiple ways that no other of the judges do. So I'm excited to jump into the life of Samson. We'll just be dealing with, actually before his life, it begins the beginning of his birth uh, and the story is told in this chapter. And over the next several chapters we'll be dealing with the life of Samson. There were at least five barren women in the Bible, so much so that it became a theme in the Bible, something that we're very familiar with hearing. Some of these mothers were mothers of patriarchs, of prophets, and then one of them is the central character in the chapter this afternoon who was the mother of Samson. She is nameless. Her name is not given in all of the Bible, and yet her virtue is obvious and clear. Let's read uh, verse number 1. We're going to begin with the Philistines' captivity. uh, And we find that in verse number 1. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. If you remember, one of the earlier judges, just after Othniel, we came across a judge that just had one sentence or one verse maybe it was two, dedicated to his life, and his name was Shamgar. And it says that Shamgar killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, uh, a farming tool that he killed 600 Philistines with. And this was the first mention of the Philistines and how they afflicted the people of Israel. But if you remember just a few chapters before, in chapter number 10, it mentions for the very first time, I think the only time in the book of Judges, that Israel... Is not just attacked on one side by uh, a group of people by an enemy but they're attacked by two different sides in the nation by two different nations they're attacked by the Ammonites and the Philistines in chapter number 10 well the story continues in chapter 10 through 11 and 12 with Jephthah and it only mentions it only gives detail of the attack from the Ammonites and then as the author brings us through chapter 12 with Jephthah defeating the Ammonites, kind of dealing with the Ammonite problem, now he shifts his focus back to that Philistine problem. This Philistine problem will last through the book of Judges. You won't find that they end the Philistine problem. It continues in to the kings with King Solomon, I'm sorry, King Saul, who is actually asked by the people to be king in order to deal with their Philistine problem, and he doesn't rid them of the problem. And it's not until the good King David that the Philistine problem is eradicated. 200 years of Philistine oppression that is going to happen for the children of Israel. Here in this very first verse, there's a curious part that's missing. I wonder if you, you can spot it. If you remember the sin cycle that we've went through over and over, Again, I felt like a a broken record mentioning that the children of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then the Lord would give them over to their enemies. And then in this chapter and in the the entire life of uh, Samson, we find a cog in the wheel missing. You see, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord gave them over to their enemies and then the Lord provides them a deliverer. But nowhere in the entire life of Samson do we hear that Israel turned to the Lord or that they cried out to the Lord or that they repented from their sin and asked the Lord to deliver them from their enemy. What we find is actually the opposite. They're quite content being under oppression living under the oppression. And now it says that they've lived in verse number 1 for 40 years under the oppression of the Philistines. Later on, we're going to read in the next few chapters that Samson is quite comfortable with the Philistines. He's fraternizing with them. He's not, I wouldn't say buddies with some of them, but he's uh, doing things with them. His family is living amongst them, kind of avoiding them. But you never hear them cry out to the Lord to rid them of their oppressor. Can you relate to Israel here? If If you remember in your own life, when we first encounter our sin, sin that besets us, sin that trips us up constantly, sins that we have a difficulty overcoming, if you remember the first time that you were caught up in that sin, you struggled against it. You fought against it. You prayed that the Lord would deliver you from it. And then, as time progressed, we become apathetic. Our hearts grow cold towards it. It becomes second nature to us. And we decide to live under the oppression of our sin. Tragically, many Christians fatally decide... That they're just going to live with it. You say, maybe, I I guess this is just how it's going to be. I will never gain victory over this particular sin. It's whooped me since I was a young boy. And I'm a grown man now, and I still can't get control over it. I guess I'll just have to figure out how to navigate life with this burden around my neck. Isn't that similar to the Israelites who are under the oppression of the enemy... They never ask for help. The Lord, out of His graciousness, is going to provide them a deliverer because, again, He's giving us the theme, once again, that He is more willing and ready to save His people than they are willing to ask to be saved. I want to give you, at the risk of sounding like a TV preacher, Jesse just got real nervous, I want to give you five ways or five things that we can do to rid our lives of our sin, to gain victory over the sin that easily besets us. Not five easy steps, but five things that we can do in faith to battle our sin. The first one, I'll give you all five of them to begin with, and then we'll go through them. The first one is, look at your sin. Look at your sin. Examine it. Secondly, load your conscience with God's Word. Thirdly, long for deliverance. Fourth, lead your steps, and then finally lean on your church. Let's look at the first one. Look at your sin. How deep-rooted is your sin? Analyze it. Examine it. If there's something that you struggle with that that constantly is whooping you, you're constantly going back to it. The Bible says that you're a slave to it. Examine it. Find out what it is. Find out what the Bible calls it. Is it something that you're predisposed to? Is it something that is a familial sin that your family has struggled with for generations? Don't use that fact to dismiss it, to make it less. Use that knowledge to arm yourself against it. That this sin is going to die in this generation. That I'm not going to pass this to my children like my father passed this to me. Look at your sin examine it secondly load your conscience load your conscience with the guilt of this sin feel the weight of it search the scriptures that condemn it allow your conscience to be broken by it sit under the weight for a little while you know I think far too often this is maybe the most uncomfortable part This is maybe the most uncomfortable thing we can do with our sin is read God's Word, see where it clearly condemns our sin and sit under that weight for a little while. It's very uncomfortable. In fact, most of us don't want to do that at all. That's the last thing we want to do. What we want to do is um, feign repentance quickly so that we can get rid of the guilt. Get it off my back as quick as I can. And yet... God's law, as was preached to us this morning, is not our enemy. It was given to us as a gift from God so that we might use that tool so that we might bear the weight and feel the weight of our sin. Because that's going to motivate us to do something with it. It's going to motivate us and allow us to realize that we cannot bear that weight alone. We can't bear the weight at all. So load your conscience with the guilt. Search the Scriptures and find what the Scriptures say about your sin. Thirdly, long for deliverance. Long for deliverance from it. Cry out to the Lord. That's what the Israelites weren't doing here. They were, they were apathetic. They were fine being oppressed by the enemy whenever the Lord granted them victory already already. The Lord said, this is your land. Go and take it. And yet they were apathetic in allowing an oppressor to take over them. And they, they had the land before them to take it. It was theirs for the taking. Long for deliverance. Cry out to the Lord. Read the Psalms where David and the other psalmists cry out to the Lord. You know that we don't have to be creative. Maybe some of you um, aren't very articulate in your prayers. And because of that, you're slow to pray. And sometimes you just decide that it's maybe not a good use of your time to pray to the Lord because your prayers aren't as articulate as maybe you've heard sometimes. Or you read the Puritan in your prayers and you're like, well, man, I don't even pray if that's praying. You know that God's given us a wonderful tool in His Word where the beauty of the Psalms, we can find a man who was king of the nation of Israel who murders a man and commits adultery with his wife and cries out to the Lord in repentance. And we can bind our hearts with His in repentance using the same words that He's using but meaning them for ourselves. The Lord's given us these psalms. Imitate Him. Imitate Him. Use His Word and cry out to Him. Long for deliverance. Fourthly, lead your steps. You need to examine your life and find, are there occasions for the flesh that I can avoid? As former President Bush says, use strategery. Now, I don't think that's a word, strategery. Um, But I think what he means is get strategical. Uh, Strategize, is that a word? Young men, if you find that every time your parents leave and you're alone, that it's an opportunity for lust to well up in your heart, and you sin then talk to your parents develop a plan get a strategy and say I, I just can't I can't be alone like that it's not worth my soul young women if there's a man a young man that gets handsy with you every time that they get alone and he starts being inappropriate first of all tell your father that'll probably fix most of the problem but secondly don't be alone with him right that seems like common sense but our, our sin, whenever it's controlling us like that, we lose all common sense. Husbands, you know what sets off your wife. Wives, you know exactly which button to push that can set off your husband. Avoid indulging the flesh in anger and outbursts and choose to live peaceably with one another. Help your spouse. He has an anger issue and you know that that topic brings up anger every time. Don't allow him to make provision for the flesh. God's Word says in Romans chapter number 13, verse 14, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. By the power of the Holy Spirit, through the meditation of his Word, we can battle the sin. We don't have to choose to allow it to oppress us and to take over us. And for 200 years, whenever God's given us victory, allow it to whoop us. We don't have to live that way with the sin that besets us. And then the fifth one is lean on your church. Lean on your church. Get accountable. Tell a brother or sister. Talk to your elders. You know, I think that when we examine that idea, most of us do it completely illogically. We think, you see, we we examine this this idea of confessing our sins one to another. And what we think will happen, what happens in our minds is that we, we confess our sin and our brother or our sister says, how dare you? I cannot believe that you would struggle with that. Now, maybe you could find yourself in a church where someone might respond that way, but I have found in my life that that's completely illogical and that's not what happens. And I know the brothers and sisters that we have in this church and I can't imagine... That being the outcome. I want to read you a verse from James. But before I read it for you, I want to give you the common quote that you all know. I'm going to quote it in the King James because that's the way that I memorized the scripture as a young boy. The uh, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The way that the ESV says it is, the prayer of a righteous person has power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has power. It's effectual. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. They're not wasting their breath. But what is the verse that that's attached to? That's actually the end of the verse. But the entire verse read in its context. I cannot believe that I went so long without realizing what is James speaking of whenever he speaks of a righteous man praying and it being powerful and effective. Let me read you the beginning of the verse. James 5.16 James 5.16 Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working." We've heard that verse quoted a million times and yet the context of that verse is speaking of when the body of Christ is accountable to one another and they go to each other and they say, Brother, I need prayer because this sin is something that is very serious. This sin, every time, ends in death. And I want you to pray for me, that the Lord will grant me victory over it. And the prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's powerful for that end. I can't think of a more powerful prayer that we can pray, is that my brother or my sister could have victory over the sin in their life. What a powerful prayer. Lean on your church. That's why we're here. That is the Philistines' captivity. They were completely complacent and willing for the enemy to come in and to take charge and not to drive them out. May the Lord give us the faith to drive out the enemy in our life. Secondly, let's look at the prophecy of the Deliverer. The prophecy of the Deliverer, and that's the bulk of the passage. This is where we find... Samson and his family. Let's read beginning in verse number two. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful, and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then, no, so then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with, this, with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose, and went after his wife, and came to the man, and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat any of anything that comes from the vine, Neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. This is the prophecy of a deliverer. He says that this barren woman is going to bear a son and this son is going to rid them of the problem of the Philistines. He's going to deliver them from their enemy. Now let me ask you, is there any other story Maybe that you've read where a woman is unable to have a child because of the condition she's in and an angel appears to her and says, you're going to have a son. The angel doesn't just appear to her but tells the same thing to the husband. And the son is born and delivers his people from their enemy. It's amazing how the story of Samson points us to the coming Savior the future greater Samson, the stronger Samson, the greater judge, the faithful judge, not the judge that will judge for 40 years or 80 years, but the one who will come and rule and reign in righteousness forever. This barren woman and this story uniquely points us to the story of the Virgin Mary and Joseph and the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's look towards the end to the end of the chapter, which is the progeny of the barren woman. The progeny of the barren woman. That's an oxymoron. The child of the childless. The child of the woman who is incapable of having a child. The end of the chapter, the Bible says, the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife in verse number 21. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. The entire time that they were speaking to him, they didn't know exactly who they were talking to. And Manoah said to his wife we shall surely die for we have seen God but his wife said to him if the Lord had meant to kill us he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson and the young man grew And the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Dan, between Zorah and Eshtel. Here, the progeny of the barren woman. There is what we'll call the barrenness motif or a barrenness theme that we find all throughout the Old Testament. It's It's initiated by the matriarch, Sarah. It was mentioned in the sermon this morning who laughs when she's told that she's going to have a son. Why does she laugh? Well, she's 90 years old, and her husband is 100 years old, Abraham. She gives birth to a son named Laughter, Isaac. And then, wouldn't you know that in the same line, where God makes a covenant with Abraham, that I'm going to make your offspring more than the sands in the sea, more than the stars in the sky, This is the covenant that God makes to Abraham. Well, Abraham has a wife, Sarah, that is barren. She can't have a child. Well, she has Isaac. And then, in the same line that's supposed to continue, Isaac marries a woman named Rebekah. And guess what? She's barren as well. She cannot conceive. And yet, she gives birth to a son named Jacob. And then, wouldn't you know that Jacob marries a woman named Rachel? Rachel. Who is also barren, and she cannot have a child. Finally, she conceives the child Joseph, who is used by the Lord to save his family from famine. Three consecutive stories that we find in the the book of Genesis, in the very first book of the Bible, begin the foundation of this barrenness motif that we find in the Old Testament. And then if you fast forward, you find the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel, where Hannah is found in the same situation. She's barren. She's un- incapable of having a child. So she cries out to the Lord and says, If you will allow me to have a son, I will dedicate him to you, to the Lord. And she has the prophet Samuel, which many scholars believe wrote the book of Judges. We don't know. That it's not given to us in Scripture. But Samuel, no doubt, becomes one of the most prominent Prophets in the entire Old Testament. And then the fifth one that we find is the wife of Manoah, the nameless mother of Samson. She finds herself barren. In an agrarian society in the biblical period, bearing children was the essential, the main, the primary responsibility and livelihood of a woman that was their role as a mother birthing and raising children however was riddled with consequences was riddled with problems with the rate of maternal death and childbirth and the rate of infant mortality we find that only half of the children in this time period lived to be 5 years old only half of them So if you could imagine, you could see why all throughout the Old Testament the idea that someone became pregnant, the idea that someone was able to bear a child was an immense blessing from the Lord. It was the peak of a woman's life to find out that she bore a child. Isn't it so sad today that our culture has completely reversed this idea. This idea that children are a blessing. Now we find a very modern notion that children are a curse. A woman finds out she's pregnant, and instead of joy and laughter and praising the Lord, it's worry and dread and anxiety. And in America, you have the option of ridding yourself of the problem of a child, and you can kill them altogether before they're ever born. I find it troubling also that throughout the history of Christianity, there are very few things that almost everyone agreed on. You find doctrines, and if there's anything that Christians like to do, it's to debate on doctrine, right? But there are a few things that all throughout history, you'll see that there was pretty much no disagreement about it whatsoever. They pretty much there's unity in doctrine on a few issues and one of them is this issue of childbearing and that a if not the at least a primary calling of women is to bear children only in 2023 can you find a genuine christian young couple that could believe that they're married and they have the option not to bear any children. That would have been completely foreign and unheard of for the last, well, I'm going to include Israel because they're part of the church, for the last 6,000 years. Now you can have a Christian that they're married, they're a couple, they're not called to celibacy, they're not called to a lifestyle of being single. They just want to focus on their career maybe they just want to travel a lot maybe they just have maybe a list of reasons but for whatever reason they believe that they can be a christian and not have any children completely modern idea that you will find very strong words against from the early church from the medieval time period from the reformation so much so that the words that i'm speaking now in our culture Many would perceive them as harsh, and critical, and divisive, and very strong. And yet the words that I've spoken to you, if you would listen to Augustine, or John Calvin, or Martin Luther on this topic, I am being very gentle, I promise. I'd encourage you to explore the historical Christian tradition of the blessing that it is to have children. I'd like to give you three functions of this barrenness motif that we find through the scriptures. This theme or this idea of women that were incapable of having children that eventually have children. What is the message? What is the theme? Why does God repeatedly give us this same theme in the scriptures? The first one is possibly the most obvious. And that is to show that the Lord is the only one who opens and closes the womb. The Lord is the giver and the taker of life. He alone holds those keys. And in our modern mind, post-enlightened man has says, well, no, if man and women do A plus B, then you'll get C. We have biology, and we have all of the science that tells us exactly what needs to happen in order to have a child. And so we think that we have the power of life. And yet, I think very clearly, one of the main lessons in this barrenness theme is that God alone controls. He opens and shuts the womb. Secondly, it emphasizes that the Lord, not His people, is the one who fulfills the covenant promise. The Lord, not His people. The Lord is the one who fulfills His covenant promise. If the Lord promises that there's going to be a mighty nation to come through Abraham, and then the first three women that are supposed to produce all of these offspring are incapable, the Lord is trying to show His church, He's trying to show His people, that I will be the one who fulfills the promises that I make. You have nothing to do with it it will be me. And then thirdly, and this kind of goes along with the second one, this entire idea of a barrenness motif, it presents to us the ultimate obstacle to the promise of the covenant. It is the ultimate obstacle. God promises that I will make your offspring as many as the sand in the sea. And the ultimate obstacle is, well, but your wife can't even have children. Well then, I'm going to miraculously you have a son. And then his wife cannot have any children. This is the ultimate obstacle, and that God is revealing His power that He will fulfill His covenant of grace to save His people. And it will not be the scheme of man that can say A plus B equals C. It will not be science and a way that man can manipulate things. God is going to save His people. And nothing, the gates of hell, will not prevail against the church of Christ. Hopefully we have been encouraged by how Samson points us to Christ. I'm encouraged to see many more uh, illusions to Christ, the allegory that we find in the life of Samson. Certainly not uh, spotless Samson, we're going to come to that, Um, and yet even in his death, in his birth certainly, and even in his death, He points us to our Savior, the true and mighty Samson that is to come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the life of this judge named Samson that you've given to us in your word. Lord, I pray that you would guide us into all truth. I pray that you would enable us by faith to have victory over the sin that you have already declared that we have victory over. I pray that you would not allow us to become complacent To the enemy that opposes and oppresses us. But Lord, allow us to, by faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit, grant us victory over the sin that besets us. We pray that you will do this for your name's sake. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.